Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Esther for the last time in this series. We've been in the series 10, 11 weeks, and we're coming down the home stretch today, and we're going to cross the finish line if the Lord doesn't come or take me. We're going to cross through chapter 10 and, and be at the closing mark. Well, several weeks ago, I made uh, the ultimate sacrifice. And I, and I do this, I won't say on a regular basis, but I do sometimes. I left my man card at the door and I watched a Hallmark Sunday night movie. All right? I know. I know. I know. That's why I made the football comment earlier to know that I'm in balance here. All right? Some of you men aren't. You need to get in balance. All right? Every once in a while, Diana is not a TV person. I am. I mean, I got to be honest with you. With 7,000 channels, there's always something on to watch. There really is. And it's always something good. It really is. So that's okay. Diana will hardly ever watch TV. She sits down for three minutes and she gets antsy and she goes and does something. I don't know exactly what she does, but she doesn't bother me doing what I'm doing. So I don't bother her, whatever it is she's doing. And that makes for a great marriage. But every once in a while, she'll say to me on a Sunday afternoon, usually... There's a Hallmark movie on tonight that I'd like to watch. And I kind of know what that means. You watch TV all the time. You can watch this one movie. So I left my man card at the door. I watched the movie. And I have to say, every once in a while when I watch these movies, tears well up in my eyes. I know they shouldn't, but I hear some of them are based on true stories, and that's what happens. The name of the movie, some of you might have seen it, was called Remembering Sunday. There's a lonely, down-on-her-luck waitress named Molly, and she meets a handsome, quirky young man by the name of Gus, and she thinks that maybe she's found the right one. But the more Molly gets to know Gus, the more she's intrigued by him, but she's also mystified, and sometimes she's a little ticked off because he is absent-minded and preoccupied. I didn't really understand at the beginning of the movie what her problem was. I thought he was totally normal, but she thought he wasn't. In other words, she thinks maybe that there's another girl in his life, that he's harboring some big secret, and she wonders what his problem is. And his problem is that three years ago, he suffered a brain aneurysm. He'd been a brilliant young astrophysicist, and now he's totally lost his short-term memory. And every day is a brand new day, and life starts new. It's really intriguing to think about this, right? I mean, you, you go to bed, and everything's there, and you wake up in the morning, and it's like totally been erased. You have to totally start all over again. Every day is a brand new day. And every day when he sees Molly, he's unable to connect the dots and recognize how exactly she fits into his life. But there's something about her that she's beautiful, she's sensitive, she's a funny woman, and it makes Gus fall in love with her every single day over and over again. And from the moment Gus's alarm clock goes off in the morning, his life is choreographed by sticky notes all over the place to remind him where he lives, who's who in his life, and what he's supposed to be doing that day. And one of the most interesting paradoxes of the whole story is that I think we all deep down yearn to be with someone who essentially falls in love with us every day, don't we? That every day is a new day and they fall in love with us again. That's what Gus offers Molly. But every time he sees her, he doesn't remember her, but he falls in love with her all over again once he remembers. I watched that movie and quite frankly, uh, it was good at some points. And then you know how how they end and you go... It can't end there, right? Have you ever watched a movie? And that, that's what happened in this particular movie. He remembered her, and, and it just kind of ended right there. But when I was watching the movie, I couldn't help but think, as most pastors do, you think about the spiritual parallels, right? I mean, I don't watch a football game, a basketball game, any sporting event, or any movie or anything without looking at the spiritual parallels. And I do think that there seems to be a parallel for us in our spiritual lives. It's the way 
that it is for many of us who are followers of Jesus. We have a tendency to forget. In fact, we have a tendency to forget almost every single day. And we have the the need to learn regularly what we should have already learned, and as Paul told Timothy, not only learn, but become convinced of. And God knows this. And that's why God over and over and over and over again in Scripture makes it very clear that we are to remember And the Jews were guilty of this on a regular basis. If you're a student of the Bible, you know well that as you read the Old Testament, the Jews are constantly having God show up and do incredible stuff in their life. And then all of a sudden they forget. And you find yourself reading it going, are you stupid or what? Do you not remember? And yet, as I've said to you so often, that is true of you and that is true of me as well. We forget. The Jews, however, in Esther chapter 9 are committed to not allowing this to happen in this instance. And that's where we pick it up in verse 17. And I want to read, there's going to be several portions of scripture here where we're just going to read through and then I'm going to make comments. And I think you'll see the big idea as we work our way through this passage. Look at verse 17 of chapter 9. And the text says, This was done on the 13th day of the month Adar. And on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Verse 19, Therefore the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. Now here's just a quick review from last week. The Jews in the rural areas celebrated this holiday and they rested on the 14th day of the month. But because Esther had asked for another day of killing, you'll remember in Susa, Most theologians believe because she understood that there was still a threat to the Jews right there in the city of Susa, in the capital city. She asked King Ahasuerus for one last day of killing. That's also the day, if you remember, that they hung the sons of Haman on the gallows. And so they rested and celebrated on the 15th day of the month. Mordecai later issued a letter. In fact, if you look at verses 20 to 22, he later issued a letter instructing all Jews to celebrate on both the 14th and the 15th day of the month. If it's good one day, it's good two days. It's kind of like, hey, let's have July 4th and 5th, right? Let's not do it it on the 4th. I mean, the grilling was so good on the 4th, let's do it on the 5th too. I'm all for that. Now, verses 20 to 25 give us a brief synopsis of the story. And if you haven't been with us, This will be really important for you to follow along these next several verses because this gives us the very reason why it's important for the children of Israel to remember. Look at verse 20. Then Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. Verse 21, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually. Because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. That they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them. And had cast purr, that is the lot, to disturb them and destroy them. Verse 25. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Verse 26, therefore, they called these days Purim after the name of Pur. Now, the name Purim is the plural of the Babylonian word Pur, which means lot. 
There's some Bible scholars, historians, theologians that, that basically say we, we would look at it in our culture as dice. Okay, They would throw a dice, they would roll a dice, it was something of chance and say, obviously our gods will work in those dice and whatever the lot is that's cast, that's what we'll do. And so it originates from Haman's casting of the dice or the lots to determine the day that the Jews would be destroyed and that was the 13th day of the month Adar. Now let me make sure that you don't miss the reason for the celebration. The Jews were under a death sentence In just a few months, in fact, it was likely that the Jews would be wiped off of the map. All 15 million of them at the time. But they were saved. They were given their lives back. And now they would live. You'll remember I mentioned to you last week, the queen, obviously, Esther, is a Jew. And the prime minister, her cousin, Mordecai, is a Jew. And there is a great reason to celebrate. And I want to say to you today that that is still true today. We have a reason to celebrate. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a reason to celebrate. You do. I mean, that'd be a good time for somebody to shout or say something, right? I mean, come on. We got to get good at this, all right? You got a reason to celebrate. I mean, you once were dead. When you sing that song, and I know the rhythm's going and everything, and at the moment, you're kind of singing along, but when you sing, I am free, I'm free to live, I'm free to dance. That's not just because, you know, your legs are working or your arms are working. You are free in Christ. In fact, Romans 3.23 states very clearly that we are all sinners and that our sin has caused us to be separated from God. We are literally under a spiritual death sentence. We're dead people walking around in physical bodies. I quote it to you very often, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we were dead But verse 4 says, because of Jesus, we've been made alive. And that is the reason to celebrate. And so the parallel for us who are now under grace, not under law, not in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, the parallel for us is that we were dead and we've been made alive. We had a death sentence on us, and now that death sentence has been lifted. That's why they are celebrating. Here's the problem. I think that for too many evangelical Christians, we spend much more time mourning than we do in celebration, don't we? We really do. You wonder why some people in this community never want to come into an evangelical church. It's because we have a tendency to spend much more time mourning than we do celebrating. You see, we're really good, and we love this idea. We're going to study it this fall. We're going to be in the book of Galatians, which the theme of the book of Galatians is that we are free. We are free in Christ. It's grace, right? We teach grace, but we live as if we're still under the penalty and the weight of sin. I grew up in an environment like that. A lot of you did. Just thinking that, that God was up there in heaven, and he had this, little, this, this paddle. My dad had, had a paddle at times in my life. And he'd make it out of a, a, like a, some of you are going like this, your dad had them too. It was about a half an inch thick and, and there were holes drilled in it. And he never used it on my sisters, but he used it on my backside many, many times. And sometimes I think we have the idea that that's who God is. That he sits up in heaven and he's got this holy, righteous paddle. And if we step out of line just a little bit, he whacks us. And so we come into Sunday school, we come into church, and we preach grace, but we live as if we are still under the penalty, under the weight of sin. That's why we have a tendency to mourn more than we do celebrate. But if anybody has a reason to celebrate, if you think about it, it is us. It is those of us who have been made new because of Jesus and the fact that the Spirit of God has taken up residency in our lives. 
I'm always intrigued that, that in, in Scripture, in Luke chapter 15, in verse 10, it says that the angels rejoice when one sinner repents. Remember reading that, hearing that phrase? The angels rejoice, you know, and you, your Sunday school teacher probably told you, you know, that you have a party. Woohoo! Yeah! Sinner repents. This is awesome! That's what happens. Now, when I was a little kid, I didn't necessarily ask those questions. I thought, it's kind of cool, man. They get a cake out. They do. Theologically, though, now I've started asking questions. What does that party look like for those angels? I would say to you this morning that I think that the reason those angels celebrate is because they actually have a fuller grasp of what it means that we were dead and we've been made alive than we do. They have a perspective that we don't have living in the heavens Being there with God, they have a perspective. They probably understand the incarnation a whole lot better than we do when when God sent his son to become man and to live amongst us. Those angels were probably going, what? What are you thinking? Why would you do that? And then they saw it play out on the canvas of history. And so when they see a sinner that repents, they understand, man, this guy was a dead man walking. But because of this whole incarnation thing, what God did with his son, he's been made alive. I really believe that's what happens. And that's why when the angels see a sinner repents, they throw a party. Because they understand the great price that was paid for the redemption of human beings. You know, what you celebrate, what we celebrate, says a lot about who we are and what we care about. Do you recognize that? What you celebrate, what you get excited about, says a lot about who you are and what you care about. I've had many people say to me, in fact, I, I confess, I was looking around a little earlier when, when the band was up here and, and David was leading us in worship, just to see what the countenance was on, on certain faces, right? Now you're sitting there going, wondering, he was sitting over here, I wonder what kind of perspective he had of my face. But here's the truth. I, we can tell a lot about one another. You can tell a lot about me, about what I celebrate, what I, what I care about. And I've heard many people say that they don't sing enthusiastically during corporate worship because it's their reserved temperament, right? I mean, they're just not like that. I mean, they're like this person or like that person, but I, I'm a little, just a little more laid back, I hear people say. And, and that's why I, I, you know, when they ask me to clap, it's kind of like I go, I will not clap, you know? Some of you do that. I, I really believe you do that. Now, I'm not going to name names, but I, I, I think sometimes I do it. Sometimes a worship leader goes, all right, come on, let's clap. And I go, I ain't clapping. If it's the last thing I do, I ain't clapping, all right? Some of you are just obstinate like that. Others of you just go, well, that's my reserved temperament. That's just, I don't clap. I don't get excited about anything. Let me tell you, There has never been a person that I have known in my 47 years of living down here on this planet that does not get excited about something, right? I mean, really. Some of you ladies, and by the way, some of you guys who are on Pinterest, I know this to be true, okay? Not because I'm on Pinterest, by the way. Yeah, uh uh-huh, I'm not. Matt Rice is, but I'm not. I just want you to know that. Yeah. Hey, save that for just a few moments. We're going to talk about that. I know you do. You go, oh, wow, look at that recipe. And then you blast it out to all your friends. This is awesome. Then you make it, and it is incredible. And you share it with everybody. I've seen grown men who sit in services like this and experience worship just like we just did with music, and they'll just kind of sit there like this. 
And I see that same man at an NC State football game or basketball game, or maybe not even at the game, but sitting in front of a TV where there's nobody else in the room and you go crazy. It's always amused me to see some of those same individuals outside of a corporate worship setting, the football game, the basketball game, a great meal, an entertaining movie. You celebrate. We celebrate what we care most about. Let me say this to you this morning. If you are overwhelmed with the fact that God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you, and you understand the huge price that was paid for your sin debt, you're going to celebrate. Right? I mean, somebody affirmed that. that you, you are going to celebrate. Now, I realize some of us have, have laid-back personalities, and, and we tend to be a little more quiet and reserved. I'm right there with you. I, I get that. Not I am one of those people, but I, I, get, I get that there, there are people like that. And I'm not asking you for an emotional response that's just kind of revved up by a particular beat in a band or anything like that. But I'm telling you this, if your life has been transformed, it has been changed because of the grace and the mercy of God, you will celebrate. You will celebrate. And I'll tell you this, that people who come into this place when we are corporately worshiping the God that did that for us, they will know what? They will know we care about this. This is a big deal. You won't find a bigger sports fan than I am, especially when college football season comes along. And I'm telling you, I can celebrate with the best of them. I can celebrate at a church softball game, just ask people. I will yell, I will scream, and I'm telling you, if I got a supporting cast around me, I will go crazy. I'll get excited about church softball, okay? These are old guys that shouldn't be playing, or young guys that really don't care that are just there to help the old guys, but I can get excited about that. And let me tell you this, if we can get excited about those things that in the end don't really matter, we ought to be able to celebrate the fact that we were dead and now we are alive. We ought to be able to do that. I trust you'll remember that as we worship corporately through music. The Jews were grateful and they were overwhelmed by their salvation. And so what did they do? Verse 26. And because of the instruction in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. Verse 28, important verse. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this letter about Purim. He sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. The command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. Now here's the cool thing. I did a lot of studying on Purim this week. I told Diana last night, we got to go to Purim sometime. We just got to do it. That would be kind of a fun thing. Has anybody ever been uh, to a celebration of Purim? Okay, a couple of you have. It's got to be a good thing, especially if you get with the right Jewish people, okay? Because I've had some friends that were Jewish, and, you know, some of them are like us, a little more reserved. Some of them are just crazy, 
All right, I want to go with the crazy ones to celebrate Purim. Here's what they do today. The Jews begin their celebration with a fast on the 13th day of the month. I wouldn't necessarily like that part of it, but they do that on the 13th. They're commemorating the date on which Haman's evil decree was issued. That was going to happen on the 13th. They go to the synagogue and they hear the book of Esther publicly read. And whenever the name of Haman is mentioned, they cry out, may he be accursed or may his name perish. In fact, there are some that actually boo and hiss. The children love the celebration of Purim, right? So as they read the story and Haman's name come up, the kids go, boo, 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 they hiss. Or they go, may he be accursed. May his name perish. Wouldn't that be cool? be awesome? We got to do something like that in in, an evangelical church. We got to come up with something like that. It's really awesome. We think of the worst person, you know, and whenever we say his name, boo, hiss, may his name be accursed. That'd be awesome. And then the children actually have these little rattles called Gregars, and they use it to make noise every time they hear his name read. So you can imagine they're twirling these things around and making noise, and they're booing, and they're hissing, and that's just an awesome thing. That's on the 13th day. On the morning of the 14th day of the month, the Jews again go to the synagogue where the story of Esther is read again and the congregation engages in prayer. And then they tell the story back in Exodus of Moses and the Amalekites, which is a pretty awesome thing because if you remember and you've paid attention in our study, I told you that had the Jews actually killed Agag, the king of the Amalekites, they wouldn't have had the situation that they had, but they didn't. And then after that, the celebrants go home to a festive holiday meal with gifts and special foods, and and the celebrating continues on to the next day. Now, even though there was no divine sanction given to this new feast, the Jews determined that they would celebrate it, and they would celebrate it from generation to generation. And I want you to note the emphasis on teaching the children the meaning of Purim so that the message of the feast would not be lost to future generations. I really fear that this is happening in our evangelical churches, not just in America, but all over the world. That our children have forgotten how great our God really is. The psalmist says in Psalm 78 that we are to tell the stories of the Lord and his wonderful works to the children. We're to speak the mysteries from the past so that the next generation will know and they will put their confidence in God and not forget God's works, but keep his commandments. Let me ask you this this morning, parents, moms, dads. Let me ask you this. What will your children remember about God and his work in your life and in your family? What will they remember? Do you ever sit at the table, and I get that a lot of us as families, we've lost this family mealtime, which I think is a tragic thing in our society, by the way. I really do. The older my kids get, I realize how much I miss that. When they're little kids, I don't as much miss it because, you know, it's food fight and those kind of things going on. Now they can feed themselves. Most of the time, every once in a while, I have to help them a little bit. But most of the time, they can feed themselves. And that mealtime is so incredibly significant as we sit and we're able to talk. Moms and dads, let me ask you this. When was the last time you sat with your kids around the table and you talked about the great things that God had done in the life of your family, in your life individually, so that you're pointing people to a God and saying, don't forget, remember, this is the God we serve and this is what he is capable of doing. Do you ever talk about those things? It's amazing how we can talk about how our son or daughter did at the soccer game or how their grades are or how they did on a test, and we can celebrate those things, but we fail to celebrate the very things that Deuteronomy chapter 6 says we should be always talking about. 
God emphasized remembering all the way throughout the Bible. If you have a concordance and you were to do a word study, you should sometime on the word remember. In fact, if you get to Psalm 136, it's a responsive psalm in which the acts of God are rehearsed in order that the people respond. His love endures forever. Just one thing after the other about who God is and how great it is. And then the people respond, his love endures forever. And don't forget, at the heart of the Christian faith, really, is the communion service. It's a communion service in which the finished work of Christ on the cross is remembered and celebrated. That's what we do, right? We drink that cup and we remember the blood that was shed and we eat that cracker and we remember the body that was broken. We remember so that we do not forget. Yet we've said very often at communion time here at Northwest how easy it is for that to become nothing more than a religious experience. And depending on where you grew up and what church was to you, that may be what it is simply to you. It's just I I drink something, I eat something. You know, it's just kind of a different time in the service. God never intended it to be that way. It is there that we might remember. When we baptize people, we are remembering. We're identifying with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. The Jews had a biblical precedent for marking these occasions, in fact. Joshua, you'll remember, uh, set up stones to mark the site of the crossing of the Jordan. With the express purpose, the text says, that these stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. If you turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4, and you look down at verse 20, you'll see how that was marked there. In fact, it's written, In those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal, and he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The bottom line was this. They put up these stones and they they created a little monument so that years to come when kids would go, hey, Dad, what's with the stones? Why are they there? Dad would look and say, oh, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you what happened here. Let me tell you how great our God is and let me tell you what God has done for us. It's kind of been an encouragement to me this week to think about setting up some memorials even for my family and in my house. Somebody came to my house not too long ago for membership or for Discover Northwest or something. And, and they looked at the clock on our wall. In my first ministry, when I left the church, they gave me a clock, a really nice clock. It's a clock, you know, you, you, it's, what do they call those? The wind-up. They just called a wind-up clock? It's a wind-up clock. Yeah, you just take the thing, got this little key, you stick it in there, and you, and you wind it up, you know. And then it chimes. It makes all kinds of noises. Only mine, I think there's something kind of wrong with it. If any of you fix those things, I might want you to look at it. Because it, it takes it a while to get in sync and to do what it's supposed to do. But I really like it. I enjoy it. I enjoy hearing it throughout the house. Uh, my wife, not so much. My kids, definitely not. And so after a while, you know, every once in a while I wind it and then it kind of goes dead. And you got clocks like that in your house? That, that, that's what happens, right? And somebody said to me, they looked at the clock and they said, what's the significance of that time? And I said, excuse me? He said, no, really, what's the significance of that time? Because it's like stuck on 8.58. And I said, I don't understand your question. Well, he said, oh, we thought that's why you probably didn't wind the clock, because that's a significant time. So I'm going to make up some kind of story about something significant that happened at 8.58. 
So that when the kids say, hey, dad, why is the clock always stuck at 8.58? I can go, well, let me tell you, son, here's what happened at 8.58. I haven't done it yet, so they're here this morning. So just pretend like you don't know when I make up that story, all right? Here's the point. Those are memorials. Those are things. These stones were there so that in the future, those questions could be asked. And it would give moms and dads in the older generation an opportunity to say, let me tell you how great our God is. Let me tell you what he's done. You know, it's a sad thing when a nation or a church forgets its heroes and the providential events that have kept them alive. I'll say that next, next uh, weekend with Memorial Day weekend. July 4th, for many of us, it will be nothing more than an opportunity for us to to simply uh, grill some burgers and some steaks and kind of have a good time with our families. And we will forget. We'll forget the incredible sacrifices that men and women have made over the generations in order that we might enjoy what we enjoy here today. It's a sad thing when that happens. How easy it is for a new generation to come along and take for granted the blessings that the previous generation struggled and sacrificed to attain. And the Jews weren't going to make that mistake. And so they established the Feast of Purim to remind their children year after year that God had saved them from destruction. Now here's, here's two warnings that I want to give to you this morning. All right, Two warnings. Put the shoes on if they fit, wear them, they're free. Okay, They just kind of come along with the whole package you're getting this morning. I just want to give you two things. Number one, if you don't want to remember, learn to appreciate remembering. Okay? You see, some of us, there's an attitude that seems to be creeping into our evangelical churches, and it's an attitude of disdain or simply no tolerance or interest in things that happened in the past. And I want to tell you, if you have allowed that attitude to come into your life, I implore you to stop it, to rid yourself of that attitude, which says, I don't really remember, I want to forget those things, and I just want to simply go ahead. If you don't want to remember, you need to learn to appreciate remembering. It's a good thing. We see this happen in, in a lot of different ways. I am always amazed at the people that don't want to sing a hymn, for example. Right? You go, what? what does it mean to raise an Ebenezer? Sounds painful. I mean, I don't understand what that means. Why would we sing that song? Here I raise my Ebenezer. No, don't let me raise my Ebenezer. What's an Ebenezer? We don't want to remember, and we don't even ask. If it's a song that we think was written back here, we're not interested in it. If you don't want to remember, you need to learn to appreciate remembering. Number two, if all you want to do is remember, you need to learn to appreciate what God is doing now. You see, we got one segment of church culture that doesn't want to remember, and anything in the past is bad, right? That's some of you, all right? Those shoes fit. Put them on, get comfortable in them, walk around, all right? That's you. Then there's another group of us All we want to do is remember the past, right? And people that are in those other shoes, by the way, that's what really ticks them off. All we want to do, let's just sing the hymns of the faith. Those were the hymns. And I say to myself, self, hey, what did they do in the church before those hymns were written? You ever think about that? Because you know where a lot of those hymns came from, don't you? Okay, you know the tunes. Nobody wants to talk about it, I know. They were barroom tunes. They were popular tunes of the day. Many of our hymns were like that. 
And we've got a whole group of people that just say, let's sing the hymns. Those were the songs. Those were this new stuff. All they do is repeat the same line over and over again. Oh, you mean like when Scripture says, holy, 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 holy is the Lord. Holy, 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 like that? Yeah. If all you want to do is remember the past, let me encourage you to do this. Let me encourage you to explore and appreciate what God is doing now. God's doing some incredible things now. And I say with regards to music, by the way, there's some incredible songs that are being written today that we sing here in this church and in this place, and we will. And God will give us new stuff as men and women minister to the body of Christ and they minister to the word of God to us in songs, in spiritual songs. And we need to learn to appreciate them. Now, I make application of it with regards to music, but there are all kinds of other applications that we might make. If you don't want to remember, you need to learn to appreciate remembering. And if you find yourself always wanting to live in the past and you never want to see what God is doing today, shame on you both. Both of those shoes need to be taken off, thrown into fire, and burned. All right? We need to remember what God's done in the past and appreciate. But we need to appreciate also what the book of Isaiah says, that God's doing a new thing too. God's always at work. He's not just the God that allowed the, the children of Israel to cross over the Jordan of River on, on dry ground. It's not just that God. God is doing some of those same things today. And there's nothing wrong with meaningful tradition. The church is always just one generation short of extinction. I really believe that that's true. And if we don't pass on to the children and our grandchildren what God has done for us and for our forefathers, the church will die of apathy and ignorance. I really believe that's true. It's when, though, tradition gradually becomes traditionalism that we get into trouble. In fact, one theologian said it this way, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Let's appreciate tradition while not falling into the traps of traditionalism being just the dead faith of the living. Well, not only did they celebrate and remember, but in addition, they gave gifts to one another. As we do during a holiday season, they were, they were generous toward the poor. And particularly those that were of the household of faith, those that were, were believers of Jehovah God. They, they, were, they were generous with those people, people that were struggling with with single mothers, with, with widows, with orphans, now, people that, who had, who've been injured at work, uh, who couldn't take care of themselves. Not, by the way, being generous with people who are lazy. Okay, That's what we would learn to understand in our culture. I have no problem with being generous for those less fortunate, those that need help. I have a great problem with being generous to those that can take care of themselves and refuse to do so. And we as evangelical Christians allow them to behave that way over and over and over and over again with little to no accountability. We won't do that. These people, though, were generous with those that were less fortunate, those that had needs. It's just simply God's people loving on each other and caring for one another and demonstrating that with their generosity towards other people. I want to encourage you to not overlook the needs that are in our body here at Northwest. And by the way, I'm not just talking putting your gifts in the towers in the back or sending them in. I, let me just take a little detour for just one second and say this to you. I am so incredibly thankful, and I know I speak for our elder team when I say this, at the generosity of the people at Northwest. I really believe that. And I believe that a lot of you are not giving out of your excess 
you were giving sacrificially to the ministry here at Northwest in order that we might do and accomplish what we believe God's called us to do. And for that, I want to say thank you. You make uh, my responsibility, our other pastors or other elders, you make our job so delightful when I see that happen. Now, I know that there are probably days coming in the, in the, in the future when, when maybe it might not be that way. Maybe, maybe the finances won't be there like we would like them to be. And maybe God will take us through an experience like that and that will be good for us. But I say to you today, thank you for that. You don't know how encouraging it is not to, not to have to worry about money. Not to have to worry about if these young guys on our staff are going to get a paycheck because people are faithfully giving. Let me just take the moment to say you are marked just as these people were here with generosity. And I so appreciate it and I know the rest of our elder team does. But let me say this to you. Apart from your giving to Northwest and towards the ministry here and to our obligations, not only in this community but around the globe, there are people that you intersect with every day at Northwest, outside of Northwest, maybe part of your life group, maybe they live in your neighborhood, and you need to be sensitive to their needs. I say it to you often. It comes out of the little book that we give a lot called The Treasure Principle. In fact, it's out at our information table this morning. That God does not bless us with more in order that we might amuse ourselves. He blesses us with more in order that we might bless others. And I trust that you will do that. Here's a really cool thing about my position. I get a front row seat to having this happen all the time. A front row seat. I think it's just incredible how sensitive the people at Northwest are to the needs of other people. I have to be careful what I say publicly about a need. I I know I have to do that. Because after the service, I will have people bombard me. I will get emails. I will get texts on how can we meet that need. Sometimes I feel like in the Old Testament when they were building the temple, And finally, they had to say, no more. Stop giving. You are giving too much. Sometimes I feel like I have to do that. What an awesome thing that is. But I want to encourage you to continue to be generous. As you invest in the lives of people, you invest in eternal things. That's the only thing we're going to take with us. We're not going to take with us our new cars, our motor home, our nice vacation, our nice nice houses, or anything else. Your retirement account, when you die, is going to stay right where it is. It isn't going with you. Thanks for your generosity and thanks for being sensitive to the people around you. The Feast of Purim was an opportunity for the children of Israel, for the Jews, to simply remember that there are those amongst us. And so they built it in to that process. I think it's awesome. So as they were celebrating, they said, let's not forget some who can't afford to celebrate. Let's go and help them. And I see that happen all the time here at Northwest. And I'm so thankful for that. And I'm so thankful that I, that I get a front row seat to see that happen. And I want to continue to challenge you to be generous. Now let's quickly look in verse 10. Coming down the home stretch, three verses. Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute. This is a real nice way, by the way, of saying he taxed them. I think it's really interesting in the context of Scripture here. They're celebrating, woohoo! We've been saved. This is awesome. Let's get together. Let's party. Let's have a, you know, and then all of a sudden King Hajwaris goes, that's great. I see all the stuff that you're giving everybody. How about giving me some? Okay? So he taxes them. <laughs> and yet they're still rejoicing. They're still excited. He taxed them on the land and on the seacoast of the sea and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and on the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of the Medes and the Persians? There's other records of this, in other words. Verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew, 
was second only to King Ahasuerus. And great among the Jews and in favor with his many kinsmen, I love this last sentence, one who sought the good of his people and who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Man, couldn't the world use some politicians like that today? Let me get our marching orders from that. One who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Let me give you these things real quickly as we close. Here's final lessons from the book of Esther. Five final lessons from the book of Esther. Number one, kings rule over nations, but God rules over both. Kings rule over nations, but God rules over both. Some of you who are continually anxious about who the president is, who your representatives are, you know, you think the world has fallen apart because they got elected. Where was God? Was he on vacation? Blah, 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 blah. Let me just tell you, kings rule over nation, but God controls them both. He's got everything under control. That's why we are supposed to honor those that he puts in authority over us. We are to respect our president. We are to respect our Congress people and, and all of those that, that serve us in that political arena. Why? Because we agree with everything they say? No. But because God's very clear that we are to honor them and to respect them. And that at the end of the day, we said it last week, their hearts are in God's hands. And he moves them wherever he wants them to go. Number two. If the book of Esther teaches us anything, it teaches us this lesson. Important ministry is often accomplished by those that are not in occupational ministry. Can I get an amen? It does. Never buy into the idea, no matter what your background is, that it's, it's the pastors, it's the paid staff. They're the real professionals. They do all the stuff. They get all the glory. All we do is give so that they can do it. And we kind of work in the nursery, change baby filters, do all that kind of stuff. And, and they take care of everything else. And ultimately... At the judgment seat of Christ, they're the ones that God's going to go, wow, I'm so glad I had you on my team. Don't buy into that. If the book of Esther teaches us anything, it teaches us that two incredibly insignificant people, ordinary people, people that didn't have Bible college degree, didn't have any paper hanging on their wall that said they knew anything, God used them in an incredible way. And I'm so thankful that God is doing that today. That God is using people that way. I'm thankful that there are some of you that work over at Cisco and work over at IBM and you work in our school system and you, you're involved in the medical field and you do all of these other things. You're in sales or you're in some type of service. You're, you're a plumber, you're a builder, you're a this, you're a that. I am so thankful. That is what you do in order that you might be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ and propagate this gospel message. And I'm telling you, God wants to use you. God has plans to use you. No matter where you are, no matter what arena you find yourself in, important ministry is often, and I, in fact, I would say it is most often accomplished by those that are not in occupational ministry. Just statistically speaking, that is true. Never underestimate that. And I will say to you again, I don't want this to be love dove, let's kiss on the congregation morning, but I'll just tell you, I stand in awe every week of seeing how God uses so many of you. And I hear stories, and I hear stories about your boldness for your faith or how you, you serve or you minister to people that are outside of this church that will never come in these doors because God has placed you there in your workplace, in your place of influence as a missionary for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Continue to do that. Important stuff is taking place. Number three, it teaches us this also. Women play an important role in God's kingdom, and he uses them greatly. Okay, if you're a woman here this morning and you go, you know, these evangelical churches, they don't appreciate women. They don't let women be elders, and they think blah, 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 blah. That's what that is. Blah. Okay? You won't find somebody that appreciates women, I don't think, more than I do. I really don't. 
I'm here because of a woman. Think about that. You won't find somebody that appreciates women more. You really won't. I look at how our women organize our women's ministry and the things that they do and the things that are accomplished in the lives of women. I look at the organizational skills. I look at the incredible teachers, by the way, that we have women right here in this body. If Esther teaches us anything, it teaches us that women play an important part in God's kingdom. If there was no Esther as the queen in the court of King Ahasuerus, think about the ramifications of that. It was Mordecai that said to her, hey, who knows, maybe you've been placed here for such a time as this, but she had to make the decision to go and speak to the king and plead for the lives of her people. Women play an important role in God's kingdom. Number four, God is relentlessly committed to caring for his people. God's going to take care of you. You recognize that? I don't care where you find yourself this morning, God is committed to caring for his people. And number five, in the end, God wins. I was going to title my whole sermon today that, and I changed my mind. But that is true. In the end, God wins. That is the theme all the way through Scripture. When you see desperation and you think, well, he's blown it now. He should have made this decision. Ah, tactical error there. In the end, God wins. It's always been true. It always will be true. It'll be true at the end of the book of Revelation. In the end, God wins. No matter how hopeless things may seem, God will win. Let me read this to you as we close. The evangelist Vance Havner. Some of you have read some of his books. If you, uh, if you haven't, I would encourage you to get a hold of some of them. He tells a story in one of his books about a little town in Alabama where the, where the major livelihood was raising cotton. And one year, just as it seemed that there, would, there was going to be a bumper crop of cotton, the ball weevil invaded. You know what the ball weevil is? Okay? If you've never seen it, go and Google one. Okay? They are ugly little creatures. The boll weevil invaded the cotton crop, it devastated the crop, and destroyed the economy of the little town. The farmers were determined not to simply sit back and do nothing while they lost everything, and so one farmer got the idea to plant peanuts, because boll weevils don't like peanuts. Other farmers decided to plant other crops, and before long, bumper crops of peanuts and other produce began to repair the economy of this little town. Interestingly enough, the town later became known as Enterprise, Alabama, and guess what they did? They erected a monument to the ball weevil. Isn't that awesome? Anybody been there and seen that? Okay, a few of you have. They erected a monument to the ball weevil. That can't be the prettiest statue ever, but there's a monument. Vance Havner writes this, All things work together for good to the Christian, even our ball weevil experiences. Sometimes we settle into a humdrum routine as monotonous as growing cotton year after year. And then God sends the ball weevil. He jolts us out of our groove, and we must find new ways to live. Financial reverses, great bereavement, physical infirmity, loss of position. How many have been driven by trouble to be better husbandmen and to bring forth finer fruit from their souls? The best thing that ever happened to some of us was that coming of our ball weevil. Without that, we might still have been a cotton sharecropper. And you know, here's the truth as we close this book. We all have those experiences, don't we? They interrupt our lives, and just when we thought everything was perfect, they come without warning, and they come without invitation. And most likely at that particular moment, they devastate our faith at that time. But in the end, we've recovered from those things too. We look back and realize that those ball weevil experiences were actually turning points in our lives. 
here's the problem, and if you don't get anything else out of today, get this out of it. Here's the problem. The problem is that we forget because we don't have a plan to remember those ball weevil experiences. We forget so easily that those were the things that God used to make us into the people that he wants us to be. We need to remember those times, those ball weevil experiences. We need to remember the great things that God has done in the past. And that gives us confidence that as we look towards the future, he is fully capable, not only capable, but he will take care of us in the future, just as he has done in the past. Remembering gives us the assurance that God is who he says he is and that indeed he can do what he says he And that's what the book of Esther teaches us. I trust that you will not soon forget some of those lessons. It's hard to believe that in just 10 short chapters, just a number of verses that we can learn the truths that we've learned over the last 10 or 11 weeks. I trust that you'll take them, you'll remember them, giving you great confidence in the future as you enter into those ball weevil experiences. Let's pray. God, thank you for the incredible privilege of being up here before these people. It's an incredible privilege that I have to, um, to serve this body. It's incredible the opportunity to get up here and open up the Word of God that has the answers for today, that has principles that are just as relevant today as they were when they were written because they come from a God who holds everything in his hand and who sustains this life that we live. God, I pray that you will continue to bless us as a people. And Lord, we recognize that that blessing sometimes means that we will have those bull weevil experiences. But that those experiences will only serve to accomplish what you want to do for our good and ultimately for your glory. I pray that we would submit to them. And that as we submit and we see your hand at work in our lives, individually and corporately as a church family, I pray that it will give us great confidence as we look towards the future to see what you will do in and through us as we walk with you to further the gospel in this community and around the globe. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.